Welcome to HJ Talks About Social Housing, a dedicated podcast series from our social housing team at Hugh James. In this podcast, we talk about the latest sector developments and topical issues to help provide some practical guidance on all aspects affecting housing associations. We are lawyers, so we will touch on the legal standpoints surrounding the topics, but don't worry, we'll keep the legal ease to a minimum. Hello, I'm Emma Poole and I'm Hugh James's Client Relationship Manager for the Social Housing Sector. I'm joined today by Sarah Jones-Howells, who's an Associate Solicitor and Consultant with our corporate team. We're delighted that you've chosen to join us for this brief roundup on how to hold a virtual AGM. Uh, Not something that we probably have planned at the beginning of this year as a topic, but certainly part of the new normal that we're all trying to navigate. Sarah, thanks very much for sharing your expertise on this topic. I can imagine that you're getting a lot of queries from various clients on it at the moment. First and foremost, looking at this from a housing association's perspective, what's the purpose of an AGM and are housing associations actually obliged to hold one? Hi, Emma. Whether a housing association is obliged to hold an AGM will really depend on their rules. If the rules include an explicit requirement to convene and hold an AGM, those rules will need to be followed. And if the association doesn't, um, it will constitute a breach of their constitution. Um, now, the purpose of the AGM is really to give the members an opportunity to hold the board to account. So it's an important aspect of the governance structure of the association. Now, I would expect most rules um, of housing associations to include a legal requirement to hold an AGM for that reason. But obviously, it is important for each association to check their rules to ensure they are fully aware of their own legal obligations. So if a housing association does have a rule that says they do have to have an AGM, realistically, how can they now do so in the current climate with all the various restrictions on movement and gatherings, etc.? Yeah, well, thankfully, the UK government recognised that face-to-face meetings would be difficult in the current climate. So it introduced new legislation in June, uh, the Corporate uh, Insolvency and Governance Act 2020. Now, this act has temporary measures uh, allowing organisations, which include housing associations, to hold virtual meetings in lieu of full physical meetings. And is it possible that a housing association might actually have a rule that currently prohibits virtual meetings, so they've needed to have that act come in? Yes, it may well do. The Act overrides the rules, though. So housing associations can hold virtual meetings even if the rules prohibit them. And if, for example, you've got a housing association who um, earlier this year had their AGM um, and at the time you might have a chair of the board listening to us uh, discuss this now and they're thinking, oh, hang on, we had ours back in April or May and we were quite happy with the social distancing rules that we followed, but we're not sure if we followed all of the the bits of this new legislation. Um, Do they need to worry about that now? Well, the provisions of the Act have what we call retrospective effect. So if the AGM was held after the 26th of March 2020 in a way that adhered to the COVID-19 social distancing measures, but didn't really meet the relevant obligations in the rules, the meeting will have been held in accordance with the law. So the Act um, takes over. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So the Act steps into place so that they can, um, it, it just gives them more flexibility. Yeah, I see. That's helpful. Um, So in terms of the new legislation, then what does it say? Does it actually help people to hold virtual uh, meetings now? Well, it has a few um, different aspects, to be honest, and all of these are aimed at trying to help the the association and any organisation to make sure that they can validly hold their meeting. So firstly, it says you don't need to hold the meeting in a particular place. So if there are any provisions in the rules which say the AGM has to be held at the registered office or any other specified location, this can be disregarded. 
It also says that meetings held uh, without attendees being together in the same place is fine. Now, this helps from a quorum perspective. The Act doesn't remove the need to have a quorum, but any provisions in the rules which say that those members must be together in the same place to form a quorum can be disregarded. Um, Sorry, just for the purposes of going back to basics, Sarah, can you clarify what a quorum is uh, for people listening? Yes, certainly. Um, a quorum is the minimum number of members that must be, need to be present at a meeting for the meeting to be valid. And this will be set out within the rules for the, the association. All right, OK. Um, the Act also specifically allows for the meetings to be held electronically or by any other means. So ultimately, the aim is to enable associations and any other uh, qualifying bodies to be able to hold their meetings virtually. Okay, so now the meetings can be held anywhere. The, all of the attendees can be in different places, but you still need to have that quorum. Um, are there any other things that they need to be aware of to take account of that might have changed now that they're going to be in this virtual setting? Yes, the other thing the Act has done is, is to reduce the um, rights of the members. Now, members will continue to have the right to vote, but they don't have the right to attend the meeting or participate in the meeting. Um, they can only have the right to vote and votes cast can be cast by electronic or any other means. So again, it gives lots of flexibility on casting votes. Okay, so is it possible then that the AGM could be held without any of the members being present only enough to make that quorum up? Yes, it does. As long as the members have been given the right to vote on the resolutions being put to the meeting, they have no right to attend or participate in the meeting and the, and the association could hold the AGM as a closed meeting. But if they're not present, how would they vote? Well, in these circumstances, at a closed meeting, the board would need to insist that the members appoint the chair as their proxy to vote on their behalf at the meeting. Uh, the meeting can then be held with just the chair and the limited number of other members needed to form the quorum. Those small group could either meet virtually or, depending on the restrictions in place at the time, hold a socially distanced meeting physically where they're all together. However, I would add that Whilst closed meetings can be useful in certain situations, they should be approached with some caution, particularly if important decisions are going to be made at the AGM. What sort of decisions would that sort of apply to? What sort of concerns would you have about it? Well, say, for example, the um, Housing Association had planned to make some changes to, it rules at the, to its rules at the AGM, um, some of which were potentially controversial. Now, although dealing with the changes in a virtual AGM would be legal, if the meeting is held without giving the members opportunity to challenge these proposals, it could be, could be perceived that changes are being in, introduced you know, through the back door. And the association doesn't, it doesn't really want to risk any allegations that there's a, I don't know, an in, imbalance in the decision-making process. Uh, boards of management should therefore, you know, they should think really carefully about how they make use of these relaxations and balance the needs to comply with the requirements to hold an AGM with acting in a way which is fair and equitable to the members and the organisation as a whole. Okay. So, Sarah, how would you recommend holding a virtual AGM? Well, unless there are good reasons for holding a closed meeting, associations should give all members the opportunity to attend by hosting it on a virtual meeting platform, ideally which one which enables members to join by telephone, you know, in case they don't have a PC or a device or they're in an area with weak or unreliable internet connection. Um, you know, there are so many different platforms available now. The key really is to choose one which is accessible and easy to navigate. 
Well, absolutely. I can imagine if people want to involve tenants, for example, they have to take account of all that that need for technology and being able to facilitate it as much as they can. Does everyone have to join online or are there any other option? Uh, no, um, depending on the social distancing restrictions at the time, uh, it could be possible to hold the meeting on a hybrid basis with some members at the, at the registered office, socially distanced, and everyone else attending virtually or by telephone. What does... Uh, a housing organisation do if, for example, they've planned for this meeting to be done virtually, um, but then someone decides to actually turn up at the registered office, do they have to let them join? No. Um, the Act, because the Act says that you don't have to, um, the members don't have the right to participate in the meeting um, and don't have the right to attend, anyone who turns up in person can be validly turned away. Um, the members, when they're invited to the meeting, should be urged to join virtually and not attend in person. Oh, I see. So, and does the Act very much leave it up to uh, the Housing Association themselves to decide which format's going to be best for the particular membership they've got? Yes, absolutely. You know, the, the AGM can be held entirely virtually or as a hybrid meeting or as a closed meeting. Although, as I explained, explained earlier, a closed meeting really should be the last resort if there's no other option. You know, the, the Act allows... Um, the association to hold a meeting in the way that's safe and best suited to their membership base really. Well I suppose with governments the whole idea of it is to make sure there's that transparency and openness isn't there so it's understandable why I can see why those closed meetings wouldn't be um, an option that they'd want to take if they can possibly avoid it. Um, in terms of any other sort of steps that they need to take if they do to go down one of these routes are there any other specific things that they need to be doing? Yeah, well, really, the board should record that any decision to proceed with the AGM needs to be recorded, um, including the reasons for the decision. And, you know, you'd have that in the, the board meeting minutes anyway. But, you know, this is all just for as a measure of good governance to make sure there's a record of why the board has come to this decision to proceed with an AGM in accordance with the Act. At least everyone has those, those reasons there uh, if it needs to be referred and if it's challenged in future. If it's held in accordance with the Act, the AGM should also reflect that in its minutes and um, any record of who voted at the meeting and how they voted should also be kept for good measure. And you said earlier that this is actually only a temporary change, this piece of legislation. So kind of what's the position going forward? Is there only a limited amount of time that um, housing associations currently can use this flexibility that they've now got? Yes, these flexibilities are only enforced until the 30th of December. Um, and note that's the 30th, not the 31st of December, which, you know. Oh, helpful. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so the government can extend the provisions again, um, but the Act doesn't currently allow for extensions beyond the 5th of April 2021. All oh, right, OK. <laughs> not long then. Um, so no. what happens if the government decide not to extend it? Is it a case that a housing association, if, it, if it's not extended and they haven't had that AGM, but it's in their rules that they need to? Um, Presumably, they, they need to do so pretty quickly to take advantage of it, do they? Yes. Yeah, so, um, if the Act isn't extended, then they'll have to fall back on the provisions in their rules for holding meetings. If there are express or implied restrictions on virtual meetings in their rules, this obviously could cause a headache in future if there are any continuing issues with social distancing and full meetings can't be held. You said there about implied restrictions. So presumably express restrictions are ones that obviously are laid out in the rules as they are. Where would you find the implied restriction? 
Uh, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Before the Act was introduced, I um, had a look through some governing documents for an RSL to see whether a virtual meeting could be held. Uh, there was an express provision allowing the Board of Management meeting to be held electronically, but there was no equivalent provision relating to the general meetings. So, arguably, this implied that the meetings, the members need to be physically present at the same place for the meeting to be valid. Um, Thankfully, the Act was introduced before the meeting took place, so we could take advantage of the relaxations to hold the meeting. But if we needed to hold the meeting beforehand, then it would have caused problems. Oh, I see. So if the Act hadn't actually been introduced, then that virtual meeting would have been completely impossible because of the rules prohibiting it. That's right. Um, it, and in that scenario, it would have put the association in a very difficult position. You know, At the moment, the Act makes things much easier. Um, but once the provisions are no longer there, it could make things very difficult. Really, my advice would be for all the associations to review their rules and you know have a look at seeing whether they can amend them during this period of grace offered by the Act to include an express provision allowing general meetings to be held electronically and including by telephone. That will just give them greater flexibility in future. And presumably, if um, people can have that flexibility in future, it might actually create a bit more engagement from people who previously had struggled maybe to attend AGMs. Um, they'll now be able to do so. You know, obviously, there are lots of logistical reasons why people um, perhaps can't attend AGMs and similarly um, become board members, for example, because it didn't fit with their lives for various reasons to be able to attend these meetings. But if actually everything is virtual, uh, not just while we navigate the pandemic, but actually could be virtual in the future as well, it might actually encourage a bit greater engagement. Might that be the case, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we're all far more used to having these virtual meetings and, and Zoom quizzes on a Saturday night. Everyone's far more used <laughs> to engaging, engaging over, over, over the computer um, over the last few months. So, you know, I appreciate that amending rules of uh, an RSL is not a straightforward exercise. But, you know, given the current situation, it, I think it is worth associations seeking legal advice about the possibility of doing this, because I do really think that, you know, members might be more prepared to engage if they can attend the meetings from the comfort of their own homes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you think there are going to be other formalities that maybe people might think, oh, because we're in a virtual format, we don't need to follow that, that actually they really need to be alive to, that, that they do still need to follow various um, sort of things that had been in place before? Yes, that's a good point. It, you know, it's really important to remember that Whilst the Act has made some changes, it hasn't changed um, everything and you know, no changes have been made to the usual requirements for a valid meeting, such as you know, the, you need to give, still need to give notice and sufficient notice before the meeting. Um, and all those who ought to have had notice before still need to have notice now within the relevant uh, time frame. The contents of the notice still need to be same and any documents to be sent in advance. Um, as I said before, the requirement for a quorum hasn't changed um, or a member's right to appoint a proxy. These provisions will still need to be complied with for the meeting to be valid. So looking at the actual practicalities of the meeting then, from your experience, what would be your sort of top tips, if you like, as to things that work well and things that people really do need to be aware of in this new format? Well, I think one of the big things is proxies. They've proven particularly important for virtual meetings. Um, you know, my members should really be encouraged to return their proxy forms to appointing the chair as their proxy, even if they plan to attend the virtual meeting. Why would they need to appoint a proxy if they're still planning to attend? Well, submitting the proxy doesn't prevent them from attending the meeting virtually, 
but it does make sure that their vote is taken into account. Say, for instance, their technology fails before they're able to cast their vote. No, I think we've all been there, haven't we? <laughs> we have, yes. Um, you know, at least if, if someone's on mute. <laughs> <laughs> if you know, at least if the company has a proxy form from the member in advance, then their vote can be taken into account. It's also useful to have the proxies in hand if, um, for instance, there aren't enough members at the virtual meeting to form a quorum. Um, depending on what the rules say, you may be able to rely on the proxies to to, to increase the numbers to get that quorum. Um, you know, it, it does depend on what the governance documents say, but that is that is possible. So proxies are one of the main um, main factors in virtual meetings and making sure that they're, they're a success. And what are the logistics then around returning proxy forms? Because presumably that needs to be planned ahead a bit, does it? Yes, well, they're usually sent out at the same time as the notice of the meeting. And usually you'd ask for them to be sent back 24, 48 hours before the meeting. Um, And usually that's done by post. But because of the importance in a virtual context, you know, they should really be allowed to return them digitally right up to the time of the meeting. So say to the members, email them back to us and you've got right up until half an hour before the meeting starts to do so. Okay. So, Sarah, do you have any other suggestions that would help people prepare for the virtual AGM they're going to hold? Yes, I have a few tips, actually. Um, you know, obviously, this is a, a very new and unique way of conducting an AGM, and members will inevitably have concerns and queries about how the meetings are going to operate. Um, sending a cover letter with a notice explaining how the organisation is approaching the AGM can give members some some comfort about, about this. Um, Earlier in the summer, we prepared a Q&A sheet for a client to send to their members uh, before the AGM, um, where we anticipated the various questions they might ask. Oh, that must have been really helpful. I can imagine. I, I hope you managed to pick out the ones that actually got asked. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, it certainly reduced the the number of queries that I think the the association had in advance. So, uh, so that was good. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and uh, you know, to... To streamline the AGM itself, you know, you could ask the members to submit their questions in advance, you know, the questions about what's going to be talked about at the AGM, ask them to sub- submit them in advance. Um, you know, this will make sure that those queries are addressed and you know, essentially limit the number of interruptions during the meeting. Um, another top tip, actually, is to prepare a script for the for the chairman. Um, this really does help keep the meeting on track and make sure make sure all the relevant business is covered. Uh, we've prepared several of these in the, in the past few months and it, it really has been a big help to maintain everyone's focus at the meeting. And is, do people ever actually do a sort of trial run because of all of the issues people can have with, with technology and things? I mean, even seeing um, announcements from the government, you see them have technology issues with slides and things. Is it, is it worth um, people doing a trial run or is that a bit over-egging the pudding? No, not at all. I definitely recommend a trial run. You know, it's it, this is as we said, this is all very very, very new, and everyone's everyone's um, approach to it is different, and people's uh, experiences are different. So, definitely, a trial run beforehand is is the way to go. You know, if the meeting starts at five thirty, you consider opening the the online platform at you know thirty minutes, forty five minutes beforehand. Everyone then has enough time to log on, check their technology is working properly. You know, there are bound to be some teething problems, but uh, hopefully this will be ironed out before the meeting rather than having to delay the meeting itself. And what about when you're actually at the meeting itself? Any particular tips there? Well, firstly, you need to know who's who's at the meeting. So if there's no formal registration offered, you know, as part of the online platform, some of these online platforms have um, mechanisms where you can register online. If there isn't that facility on the platform that's being used, 
either the secretary or the governance officer should really undertake a roll call. Uh, this is also a good opportunity to give everyone a um, chance to see if their microphones are working properly. Um, so even if the trial run is make sure they're on, online properly, obviously make sure that their microphones are working and if and if uh, and everyone can hear them. Um, the other thing that the chair should do is to set out some ground rules at the start. Things like making sure everyone's microphones are working, but obviously keeping them on mute when they're not speaking because that background noise um, can can cause some disruption. Um, you know, the other thing you can do is explain that comments or questions will be invited at appropriate intervals um, rather than people interjecting constantly. And also speakers should say their name first so that anyone who isn't um online and is maybe joining by telephone knows who's who's talking um, some of these online platforms you can do a Q&A a live Q&A while while the uh, while the meeting is going on but if it doesn't and or they don't want to do that then the members should be asked to you know raise their hand and, and wait for the chair to invite them to speak this will just avoid everyone talking over each other and um, in, and, and if any, anyone's Joining by telephone, then the, the chair can specifically ask them if they have any questions rather than raising their hands. How do they go about casting their vote? Well, as I said earlier, the, the, as long as they're given, that they still have the right to vote. So as long as they're given the opportunity to vote, votes can be cast in whichever way suits the organisation, really. Um, I've spoken already about the benefits of proxy votes. You know, if the membership is large, the association could insist that members exercise their right to vote by appointing the chair's proxy, and this will count as their vote. Um, as I say, it might be useful as a large membership and could reduce the overall length of the meeting. Um, show of hands, that that's, can be easily achieved on video conferencing with all the attendees raising their hands at the appropriate point. If anyone's not visible because they're on telephone or their video link fails, the chair can ask them to confirm their vote verbally. As long as their voice can be heard, their vote, their vote can still be counted. Okay, so what would be the optimum number of attendees they'd be looking to have? Because obviously, you know, these meetings that I'm sure you've found um, with any conferences you've attended and things, it can get um, quite difficult. The more attendees that are at a meeting, you know, the, the harder it is to sort of facilitate it, I suppose. What what generally in your experience has been about the numbers that have been involved? I think it really depends on the nature of the business that being considered and and at the meeting and the you know the typical engagement from the members if it's a if it's a routine agm where it's just a considering the the accounts and the and the annual report there may be little engagement from the mem needed from the members other than casting their vote so optimum number really does depend on what they're talking about obviously if there's something more important that needs to be discussed the more members it it's it is a lot more difficult to have a conversation when um virtually when there are lots of people uh, wanting to wanting to speak. I attended a few AGMs in the summer. There were, I don't know, 20 attendees at each of these. Um, about 10 members voting. And this was all very manageable, voting on a show of hands. Obviously, maybe more difficult with a larger group. Yeah, it, it's getting that balance right, isn't it, between being inclusive, yeah. but also making sure that you can get the, the work done that you need you need to do and the decisions passed that you need, that you need to. Um if you do have a larger number, what options would you say are best? Well, you can obviously still have a virtual meeting, but you might need to look at uh, an online meeting platform which gives you the ability to cast votes um, electronically. Um, you know, this this will avoid any potential for human error in counting the votes if there if there are a large number of them in a, in a small organisation. You know, the, the governance officer or the secretary 
will probably be familiar with the members and know who can vote and who can't vote. So, you know, recording the vote in that sense is a lot easier. In a larger membership or or where the governance officer isn't familiar with the members, then electronic voting might be um, the way to go, particularly if there's a subset of members who are only entitled to vote because they can set the voting parameters um, uh, electronically. Um, you know, even then, arguably the governance officer or secretary should have a list of the eligible members and they can cross-reference it against the votes, but at least um, the hard work in counting the votes is done for them. And am I right that some housing association rules allow members to demand a poll vote or a ballot? Because if that's the case, how on earth would that happen in a virtual way? Yeah, that's right. Now, you know, these rules often give members the right to demand um, a ballot. And at a physical meeting, that would be easy because you just hand out a ballot card for them to complete. Obviously, that's not quite as easy as a virtual meeting. Um, whilst the Act is in place, because the members have no right to demand to vote in a particular way, the association doesn't necessarily need to comply with the demand for a ballot. Um, you could satisfy this method with electronic voting, um, but realistically, if it's going to put an unnecessary onus on the meeting, then any request could and should be resisted. And from what you've seen, are, are people adapting to this all quite well? I mean, technology obviously has been placed in place for some time, but a lot of us haven't actually had to use it. Now we're in a, in a a world where many people who maybe wouldn't choose to use it are sort of being forced to and things. But are you actually finding that people are embracing it? And it's working quite well. Yeah, well, yes, I think people are actually. You know, the the act originally allowed um, organisations to delay the age of their uh, the date of their AGM, um, and many associations took advantage of this just to give them some breathing space. But that uh, concession expired on the 30th of September. So, you know, you can't, you can no longer delay the date of your AGM. And frankly, they shouldn't need to because the Act gives them plenty of flexibility to allow AGMs to continue, um, even if it is on a closed basis, just for the purposes of complying with the legal requirements. But as we said, we wouldn't advise that unless it's necessary. Yeah, that's really worth people knowing then, really, that, you know, towards the end of this year, they, they really need to make sure that they're taking steps to get these diarised and all of the various arrangements around them made. I mean, do you think that people are going to embrace this approach going forward and that once COVID is happily a distant memory, that actually virtual meetings might well be the way that people decide to go with this kind of meeting? Or is there always a place for face-to-face? It depends on the association and their membership base, really. You know, there are lots of benefits to having an online meeting, aren't there? You know, there's it means they can participate, you know, wherever they are. Um, you know, if there are any physical um, constraints, either because from a disability or geographical constraints, it means they can attend the meeting and, and there may be more engagement. Also saves time. Um, virtual meeting takes less time to arrange and administer and hold. There's a formal record of events. Um, you know, using digital instead of paper is obviously more transparent and you get instant results. Also, we reduce costs um, for the organisation and the member. Yeah, there's, yeah. Um, you know, okay, there, there would be a fee for online platform for the, you know, for using the online platform. Um, there's no venue costs or refreshment costs or travel costs for the organisations or the members. And obviously less travel means reduces the uh, the carbon footprint, doesn't it? So that can help with uh, social responsibility obligations as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, the downside is that, you know, you don't get to know people as well on a virtual platform. So, you know, it's, imba- it's important to you know, to balance the, the level uh, of engagement with the members, particularly those tenants. You know, you, you, it, it is difficult to, to, to get to know someone and you, 
you do benefit from a face-to-face meeting and, and people sometimes look forward to having that AGM to get together and celebrate the success of the association as had during the year. So it, I think it, it, it does have its place and it will be useful, um, but um, used in the right, in the right way. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, isn't it? We only realise how much we miss face-to-face now that, now that we don't have it. So um, that's right. No, I think it will be interesting to see what happens next. Any sort of final thoughts that you'd like to leave people with, except that make sure before the 30th of December you've applied your mind to this a bit? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's certainly been an interesting and challenging year from a governance perspective. Uh, you know, remains to be seen how how all these changes will impact on associations going forward. But, you know, if nothing else, then it all keeps us on all our toes. And I just w- wish everyone the best of luck with holding their uh, AGM. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm sure if anyone's got any sort of follow-up questions, they can come to our corporate team and um, and contact them for a bit more guidance if they needed something specifically relating to their, their rules. But for the moment, thanks very much, Sarah. We may have to do an update from the 30th of December. So I hope New Year's Eve, you and I can get together again. <laughs> Thanks, Emma. Thanks. If you would like to take part in the conversation, suggest a topic, or need some further guidance for your organisation, please get in touch at socialhousing at hjtalks.co.uk. For more information on Hugh James and the services we offer, visit hughjames.com or check us out on Twitter at PropertyHJ.